today here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with uh, John Ballard, a PhD. Uh, thanks for joining us today, John. And uh, we're going to be talking about his uh, book, Decoding the Workplace. Before we get started, let me tell everyone about a couple of uh, shows that we've got scheduled. Next week, we're going to have Mark Horowitz, who's going to talk about the uh, truth in investing. And the following week on August 7th, for all of you who are golfers, we're going to have Missy Kirkpatrick, who is the owner and proprietor of the Lindale Golf Club and a second golf club here in uh, Cincinnati. So th- that's promising to be an interesting show. We've got some more surprises in August. Some things that are coming up here in, in Sandler. Next week, on July 29th, we have uh, the 10 Essential Selling Principles that Most salespeople Get Wrong. That's a, a program that we're going to do on Wednesday the 29th over lunch from 11.30 to 2.00. If you're interested in that program or any of the other programs that we're putting on here at Sandler, you can call Brittany at 513-753-9400. She's on extension 102. The next two Sandler boot camps, sales boot camps, are uh, August uh, 20th and September 22nd. That's where we take people through the Sandler Foundations uh, program. And uh, then we have a business leadership workshop which is a program designed for business leaders, sales managers, vice presidents. Uh, The next two programs in that series are uh, August 13th and the 10th of September. Uh, Those are going to be over at the Ivy Hills Country Club over lunch from 11.30 to 2 p.m. Some of you, I hope, have read the new Sandler book, LinkedIn, The Sandler Way. Uh, that's, That's available free through my website. There's a a button. You can download the book. Uh, It's a great book. We're going to be taking two training sessions on LinkedIn, the Sandler Way. The first one is August 12th uh, from 8.30 to 10.30 here at our training center in Eastgate. If you want to register for that, contact Brittany again at 753-9400 in the 513 area code. She's on extension 106. And we're going to be talking about the best practices in using LinkedIn. Uh, Since LinkedIn is a Sandler client, and happy client, I might add, uh, they cooperated with Sandler in the writing of the book. So this isn't outside stuff. This is stuff that has all been approved by LinkedIn. Won't get you thrown off the site. 
but it's, it's, it's how to grow sales and make contacts with the appropriate people. If you want to register for any of those events, you can contact uh, Brittany at 513-753-9400, extension 106. Let me uh, tell, tell the folks, John, a little bit about you. John is, is a professor of management at Mount St. Joseph University here in Cincinnati. Uh, that, 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 that university used to be called the college. Right? It used to be the college. We just changed it, I think, last year. Okay. In uh, 2013, Cincy Magazine named uh, John one of the Tri-State region's outstanding educators. John graduated from the United States Air Force Academy and earned his Ph. Degree, Ph.D. degree at Purdue. Uh, what did you earn their Ph.D. in? Well, the Ph.D., I did most of my work in industrial organizational psychology, mm-hmm. which I see as a subset of social, and so I ended up in, uh, in social psychology. Okay. Uh, and, and Sandler's a psychologically-based selling system. Uh, during his years as an officer in the Air Force, he reinvented the Air Force Management Consulting and saved taxpayers millions of dollars. Uh, John writes and blogs about the practical implications of his academic research on management in his blog. Uh, and the blog is found at www.johnballardphd.com. Did I get that right? That's correct. That's correct. We have about probably three years of blogs there now. Okay. That's a great way to write a book. Well, the blogs in the book are a little different. The, okay. The, the, the blog really is speaking to what I'm trying to do, which is to translate a lot of the more academic research that professors and people are doing and, and make that more uh, accessible to the practitioners, to the managers. And that's really what I'm trying to do, not only with the blog, but also with the book. Mm-hmm. We seem to have a kind of a gap uh, between the people in academe, quote-unquote, ivory tower, and the people out there in the trenches and, and running organizations. And we have a lot of meetings, and we talk about this a lot at conferences. And these are my small efforts to move in that direction. Hmm. The book's part of that. The blog's part of that. I tweet uh, three or four times a day. That's part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this book, Decoding the Workplace, 50 Key Ways to Understand People in Organizations was your first book. This is my first book. I hope it's the first of several. I have a variety of books I'm working on right now, but this is the first. Learn the business. Okay. Uh, Why don't you tell our audience uh, why you wrote the book? Why I wrote the book? Well, as I was saying, part of it is this practitioner scholarship gap. But the real place where it started was in the classroom, especially with graduate students and especially with those who are already mid-level managers or slightly above. And in the classroom, I like to take concepts and and tell stories about them and try to make it memorable. Uh, I'm not big into memorize, regurgitate. I'm into, okay, you're gonna spend time with me, let's make it valuable. So students would say, hey, I would like my wife to know about this. I would like my uncle to know about this. So based on that, I got a lot of impetus from students saying, write a book. So then I talked with a major publisher. Uh, What were the needs that he had in the business area? 
And he said, look, we have all these academic books on organizational behavior. You guys have done thousands of studies. You got all this research. And, 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 and the person on the street doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. So I decided that I would try to take the research and organizational behavior and what we know and put it into a book that's highly readable so that people could understand it. I, you know, there's, everything we have is backed up by uh, research and theory. And the book, The 50 Keys, are backed up with over 100 stories. Mm-hmm. Some are about me, some are about others. Uh, but all the stories in the book uh, come out of real organizational workplace uh, types of events from corporate America to the small business owner. Mm-hmm. And how many years were you a consultant for the Air Force? Well, I would say I spent uh, roughly around 20 years, and I would say I probably spent a good three-fourths of that involved in consulting. And it was really kind of an interesting story. I I had my choice of professions that I could get into in the Air Force, and I decided to go into a career called management engineering. It did manpower studies, but one of the things that appealed to me was that you learn to do consulting, and you do consulting studies. So I went to a 10-week course in Denver, Colorado, to learn about management engineering. We spent one hour on consulting. And afterwards, I asked the instructor, I said, hey, this is why I chose this field. And he says, well, we don't really do much, and really, we don't know how. When I got to my first duty station at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi, there were 10,000 people there, talked with my boss and he said you know if you want to do something like that you want to build a capability to do consulting go ahead have at it so I did I studied Booz Allen Hamilton did other organizations a lot of books and the general there gave us a a study to do absolutely loved the results started giving us more we built the consulting capability it went from one base to multiple bases and by the time it was over it was Air Force wide and I was asked to write the chapter on how to do consulting in the Air Force, and it followed me through my entire career. Did a lot of consulting in Europe for our Air Forces over there. They loaned me to other government agencies. Mm-hmm. And then uh, along the way, toward the end, I did a little private sector stuff here and there. Lately, it's been more, I'd say the past 10 years, if I'm in the mood, a workshop here if I'm asked, a workshop there, and some individual consulting uh, to help some people move along. What I really wanted to do, though, was to, was, was to get the book done and, and, and get it out there so it could help people. How long have you been working on the book? I actually started writing the book in, 20, uh, in 23, 2003, and I worked on it pretty diligently for several months. And then I had some higher priorities came up, and I put it on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then I got back to it uh, eight years later. <laughs> <laughs> and so I really started in earnest in, in, in 2012. And I must say, uh, I was very thankful uh, to Mount St. Joseph University because they, they gave me some time right there at the end to finish it up during a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. That was the first draft. It's been through 15 drafts before it was actually published. 15 drafts. Little, 15 drafts. It's, wow. been, it's been a fascinating process. Mike, it really has. I have learned so much, and I'm still learning. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I haven't typed the first word of my my <laughs> first book. But uh, one of the things that I learned that was pretty cool was that I, you have to find your voice. And I started writing, and it was hard. But when I started speaking to my computer and letting it write for me, 
it opened up, and I found that it was much easier for me to write then. Mm-hmm. John has agreed to uh, take questions from our listeners. I hope some of you are still out there, uh, <laughs> despite the technical difficulties. The call-in number today is, as always, 646-595-4916. We'll be able to screen the callers during the uh, commercial break, which will be coming up in a couple of minutes. Mike, if I could add one thing, in, in addition to the consulting along the way, I did a lot of things in the Air Force and several uh, significant management positions. And my, just to kind of, you know, for perspective, my last management job before I left the Air Force, uh, I directed the Air Force Survey Program. We surveyed over 150,000 people a year. We also, I was also in charge of all civilian and military testing, personnel testing. That was a half a million people a year. And I had $20 million that I funded into R&D research uh, in support of uh, personnel uh, requirements. So uh, had some significant management experience along the way. Good, good. Here at Sandler, we do a lot of uh, profiling of uh, business people to find the winners, uh, to find those people who are capable of learning, uh, to find those people who are capable of changing easily. Not everyone is. Well, I'm hoping that this book will help some people up their game. That's a, a large reason, you know, why I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Last question before we take a uh, short commercial break. Uh, what's the most important single lesson that you got out of your years of consulting in the Air Force? Most important, because well, it's Air Force and private sector in this case. It, there's no doubt about it, Mike. Uh, the people in the trenches in our organizations have a lot of ideas. They are close to the problems. They often know the problems. I found time and again mm, that when I was with the people in the trenches that they had really clear insights and ideas. And they either would not give them to uh, management because they didn't think it would do any good, or they felt that, um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, why bother? Or they did try and nothing happened, nothing changed. In other words, if I had one thing to say in that regard, it would be, uh, there's an awful lot of ideas if we would just listen to the people in, in, in our organizations. Good. We're going to take a, uh, a short commercial break here. We're going to listen to a couple of Sandler commercials, uh, and we'll be able to screen our callers. Again, if you have any questions for John, the direct call-in number is 646-595-4916. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. At the first sign of trouble, there are three types of business leader. The first type of leader is like a turtle. He pulls his head and tail in and hides in his shell. Turtles hunker down, just trying to survive. The second type of leader is an opportunist. They're like eagles. Eagles spread their wings and take advantage of the winds. They catch the storm wind and rise to new heights. The third group, between turtles and eagles, are called turkeys. Turkeys are average and anxious. They huddle together and move. They never saw. However, turkeys are easy prey for those who seize the opportunity and soar. If someone in your industry goes out of business, are you going to get the business? The question is, which type of leader are you? Will you seize the opportunities to take market share and grow, or will your fate be like the turkeys? If you're serious about growth, call me to arrange a confidential meeting, 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Roth & Associates, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. You've heard our commercials about sales and sales management, but you haven't made the call for some reason. Maybe you're having your best year ever. 
Maybe you think a sales development company won't work in your industry. You're different. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Maybe you're afraid that if you called, you'd buy something. If you're happy with all your sales and profits and believe you have all the answers or simply don't see yourself investing in yourself or your people, then don't make the call. We have nothing for you. For over 15 years, we've been coaching, mentoring, business owners, and sales professionals who are serious about their careers. So if you believe that Sandler Sales Training might make you better, faster, meaner, and stronger, call me at 513-646-6523 or register for our next open house. Roth & Associates, the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. You can check us at www.rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth and John Ballard. Uh, John, you indicated you wanted to elaborate a little bit more on the answer to the last question. Right. I, I wanted to say that in most of problem-solving type consulting that I did, a good 75% of the recommendations we ended up with were from the people in the organization. If management had uh, listened to them, it would have been much easier. I had one experience that I wanted to share I thought made a pretty good point in I was doing a consulting study of a 24-hour operation in the United Kingdom. And I like to be out there with the people getting the work done. I was there at 3 a.m. when they took a break for tea. And we sat around and we talked about issues and ways to improve the operation. And then one of the people said, you know, you're the first person in leadership that I've seen out here. And then they all started talking about how they never saw the managers, they never saw the leaders. And one guy said, I've been here 25 years and you're the first person who's been out here at 3 a.m. to ask me my opinion. Thank you. That was one of those nice moments. Mm, It's a hard shift. Hard shift. Okay. Uh, Let's uh, ask one more question here. Uh, As I'm a, give us a little strange question. John, people have told me we have up to five generations of people in the workforce today. Uh, how should managers adjust to those five generations of people that are in the workforce? Workforce. Well, I think the main thing is for managers to understand the people in their workforce, especially the direct reports in terms of individuals. Uh, if you have 16 to 20 direct reports, you should be able to get to know them fairly well and the kind of things that motivate them and what they want. A lot's made of generational differences. For some years, I kind of dismissed it, but increasingly I became aware there are certain events, for example, the internet, uh, the digital revolution that do have an impact. So there's a lot there in terms of managers actually trying to understand where they are coming from. I really think that for a lot of the millennials and people new to the workplace, I think decoding the workplace, uh, the 50 keys to understanding people and organizations is a good place to start because it breaks down, it's kind of like Greg Popovich said in his endorsement, it, it breaks down the workplace into its parts and it should raise everybody's people like you, anybody's people like you. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea. And I think there's a lot in there that millennials probably would benefit by uh, by reading. Mm-hmm. And I think it could even be used in a, in a training program in organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, we, we are going to take callers uh, at, during the com- screen callers during the commercial break. Uh, the number is 
595-4916. Did I get that number wrong? No, you're right. That's fine. Okay. Uh, All organizations aren't the same. You know, certainly the Air Force is different than a uh, publicly held Fortune 500 company. And the Fortune 500 companies are dramatically different uh, in their execution to uh, regional privately held companies and smaller privately held companies from one to 50 employees or even one to 10 employees are different than the next uh, step up. Uh, how does your book relate to those different sizes of, uh, of company? Well, I think this is one of the areas where the book is different from your typical business book. Uh, it's really designed for the employee, the manager, the business owner, to help them understand better what's kind of going on around them. While you have different types of organizations, when you break it down into its parts, there are tremendous similarities. Take employee engagement. Mm-hmm. The small business owners are concerned about employee engagement. It just as the Fortune 100 company. So what do we know about employee engagement? You have on one end, you have very little engagement. On the other hand, you have a lot of engagement. So we as professors, researchers, we study employee engagement. It will apply in most situations. All of the things that we talk about in in organizational behavior management that are research-based, they're all probabilistic. They're not going to fit every single situation. But the thing is, they are going to give you information that make you a better decision maker in a variety of situations. One of the things we teach in business research out out, out at Mount St. Joseph, if you gather more data, if you get information, you're going to reduce the risk in your decision making. It's that simple. And it doesn't matter what size company that you're in. All of the parts in there, you'll find corporate stories, you'll find stories by small business owners, but the parts are there. Even within, say, the Air Force. The Air Force is a monolith. The Air Force is like any other company. There are parts that are loose and research and development, and it's a it's a big organization. Mm-hmm. And, and in our know, perspective, it's total. It's to, It's tremendous variety. We call that silos. Yeah. Well, there are, well, there are a lot of silos where people don't. That's one of the things that I talk about in the book is is the problem related to silos. Mm-hmm. The fact that people here's a, here's a pointer for your listeners. Uh, I talk about systems perspective uh, in the book how. All organizations are systems, they're made up of subsystems, they're part of systems, and that really, if you want to make good decisions, you need to take that systems perspective and ask yourself, especially on those big decisions, who's going to be affected by this decision? Who needs to be at this table? Who do we need to talk to? I guarantee you, there are listeners out there right now who've had decisions made who have, that have tremendous impact on those people, tremendous impact that they had absolutely no input whatsoever. And had the people who made the decisions understood the nature of the decision, they wouldn't have made it the way they did. It happens every day because, as you say, Mike, the silos. We get so hung up in our silos and we do not take a system's perspective. But if if the manager takes a system perspective, they're going to do a lot better in making good quality decisions for. And that's gonna that's gonna have great that's gonna be great for their company. So it'll be great for them, and hopefully it'll have some impact for whoever their significant others are. Yeah, I can see how systems are re- really important, and uh, but you also have to know the people. 
um, at one point in my career, I was on a, a ride where I was the fifth employee hired in a company that uh, less than five years later was doing a billion dollars, almost a billion dollars in sales. Ah, good for you. It was a hell of a ride. Yes. And uh, in the, uh, the second and third year of the ride, uh, when Bill, the original CEO, was no longer around, uh, I'm in California. The new CEO is in uh, Washington, D.C., and I'm saying, thinking to myself, what would Bill have done? What would Bill have wanted me to do? And that's how we made the decisions. And it, it, it allowed the company to grow dramatically. Uh, of course, we went in directions that Bill never thought we would go. Of course. <laughs> it was almost uh, a, a, a ride out of control. So uh, why aren't we talking about your book? Well, because I haven't written it yet. <laughs> That'd be a great book. Uh, so some of the some of the people can't dispute the story since Bill's no longer alive. Let's. <laughs> uh, uh, I changed the names at the end, so we're okay there. Okay, that's good. But uh, you know, you put a lot of ideas into the book. Well, here's the thing: a lot of the a lot of the the business books take one theme, one concept. You can take a chat any of those chapters that I have mm -hmm. there. You can take that chapter and build it into a book. You know, once, you, know you, you read a, a good business book, you can probably skim through it in no time at all, and you leave maybe two or three things that really impact you, okay? Mm -hmm. This is not that kind of book. This is not your typical business book. This book is a career development book. It is written for the individual. Uh, the way you would approach this book, I would recommend you read the preface, which you can read on Google or at Amazon.com and see if it's of any interest to you. And then you read the next chapter, which is about how to use the keys. And, and basically what you need to do is to, as you go through, reflect on what's being said. The, the keys that I have in here, the 50 keys, you might find your own keys in the text that I've never, that I haven't highlighted. And the key that's the most important to you, uh, you know, I, I may not know what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it will be there in, in, in what, resonates in your situation. So I can't tell you this is the most important key or this is the most important key. The main thing though is to take the keys and understand them. There are different levels of understanding things. Some people just understand things from a knowledge point of view. You have to actually read what I say and li listen and, and read the stories and then reflect on how they relate to you. And that's the real key, Apply relating the material to yourself. To yourself and the company. And your company. Where you are today. Yes. So read the book. And then after you've read the book, go back and take those chapters apart and really think about where those ideas are that resonated with you that you get up your game. So is this book written more for the CEO and manager or for the worker in the company? I've asked, been asked that question. And frankly, it's for all of them. But the person that's going to probably do the most good is going to be most good. It's probably going to be the uh, employee, the mid managers, mid manager. But but I've had CEOs who've read this already and told me, wow, I even learned something. Good. We're going to take a commercial break now and we'll be back after Sandler rule number two.
Hi, I'm Carl Graff with Sailor Training, and I'm here to talk about Sailor Rule Number Two: Don't spill your candy in the lobby. So, what does a spilled box of candy got to do with the sales call? Everything. When you go on a sales call, you take your box of candy. Your box of candy is your knowledge, your expertise. And salespeople are so anxious to open and spill their candy. When a prospect shares a concern that might be able to be addressed by your product and services, the salesperson launches into presentation mode, highlighting their features and benefits. They might throw in a third-party testimonial or two for good measure, candy, candy, and more candy. While there's time to share your candy, of course, it's during the formal presentation, demonstration, process review. And that's only if you and the prospect together have truly understand the issues they're trying to resolve. In the initial phase of the sales call, leave the candy in the box. Your task is to fully understand the prospect situation. You have to make sure that you uncover the prospect's issues before you make your presentation. During the initial phase of the sales call, the candy must remain in the box. Your task is to uncover the prospect's uh, issues. Your task is to ask questions to uncover the problems that need to be addressed or the goals that need to be achieved. Your task is to truly identify if your products and services will truly address and help the prospect. Your task is to leave the candy in the box. If you're routinely dropping off material, information, marketing material without truly understanding the prospect's buying motives, then you're creating the habit of spilling your candy in the lobby. Ask yourself this question. If they, if they have your information, if they have your pricing, do they really ever need to talk to you again? Ask yourself, would they ever take your information and shop your competitors? Get enough facts to fully understand the opportunity. And if you get far enough through the development cycle to make a presentation, then open your box of candy. Yes, you should and can help the prospect. But the best way to help them early on in the process is to ask them questions, talk as little as possible, and get them to talk as much as possible. Your task is to gather the information, not dispense it, and save the box of candy for later. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with... John Ballard, uh, and uh, we have a caller, uh, Dr. Rashid. Uh, do you want to repeat your question for uh, John? Yes, uh, John, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, readers might think that your book is designed for U.S. corporations and U.S. culture only. My question, does it apply to uh, multinational cultures and, and international uh, foreign businesses? Okay. I, the question basically is, does it apply in other cultures, other countries? And the answer is most definitely yes. I'd say 95% uh, of the book uh, will be very relevant in other cultures. It's for sale now uh, worldwide. And uh, a lot will depend on the nature of a particular country's culture. Uh, the one area that might be a little different is I talk about, I talk about uh, women in the work for, in the workplace and some of the issues related to that. And if you do not have women in the workplace or you have very different, if it's a culture that is very masculine, um, then there might, that may not be quite uh, as uh, important to them. But when you break down the parts of the workplace and into what they are, uh, norms, roles, uh, 
the organizational culture itself, uh, leadership issues, uh, what gives you purpose, all of those things are going to be, uh, going, the fundamental parts are all gonna be there, uh, whether it's regardless of country, regardless of whether it's a small business, large business, whatever. Because that's what it's about. It's about these small parts. Mm -hmm. Great, okay. great. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Rashid. Thank you, yep. thank you, thank you, thank you, John. Thank you. Very welcome. Okay, um, you know, in the title of the book is very tempting. You, you, you say you have fifty uh, keys to dec decode the uh, organization and people in the organization. Uh, John, could you give our listeners an example of two or three of those keys? Well, one of the keys we've already talked about, and that's the taking a systems perspective. The big picture. Yeah, the big picture. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a very important one. Uh, toward the latter part of the book, I, I talk about the work of a Joseph Rishlock. And one of the important things that comes out of Rishlock, I think that really helped me in a man, when I was a manager, two points. Uh, one point uh, is simply that you really can't understand another person unless you're trying to see things the world through their eyes. You can never do it perfectly, but if you don't try to see how the other person is coming at the world, you won't even come close to understanding the other person. The other thing, and this was especially helpful, is that people can behave arbitrarily. We can talk about reinforcement schedules. We can talk about doing everything in the world to make the uh, correct a behavior uh, of an employee, and yet they don't have to do what you think they would do. They could still they still have free will. They mm -hmm. can make make up their own mind. And I think understanding that this arbitrariness that is possible, that is inherent, that people have to come to make their own decision and to buy and to buy in what you you want them to buy into. I think it's a very important insight, especially for younger managers. Mm -hmm. it, it goes from dress code to, to attendance. Uh, and uh, in, in our Sandler management uh, program, we talk a lot about uh, what, what you have to do to onboard a new sales employee or onboard a new uh, sales manager. Uh, in your book, you write about organizational socialization. socialization. Yes, indeed. Okay. Are they the same onboarding and in, in organizational socialization? Well, according to Wikipedia, but <laughs> according to Wikipedia, <laughs> but actually, no. Uh, in my opinion, uh, onboarding is a part of organizational socialization. Organizational socialization is is much larger than just on onboarding. Uh, I think the Society for Human Resource Management has looked at how long these programs go, and they may go out a, a, a month by six month point. And only about 15% of the companies even have anything. And these, and I think there's an important point to be made here, Mike. And that is these onboarding programs are formal, are formal. Mm. And so much of our work in the organization and the, one of the real keys to understanding organizations, and I do talk about this, is the informal aspects of the organization, the informal networks, the informal groups. This is how things get done. When we talk about organizational socialization, it includes those informal things. And we're, all, we're, we're learning that the behavior of the new employee is different. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times we forget that. And it's going to be different for a while. We need to understand that. Uh, if you have I'm some... Let me give you an example. I worked for IBM 
in a competitor for IBM. And I remember the, uh, the first day at work at one of the companies, who shall remain nameless. Uh, first day on the job in Manhattan, uh, my new boss says, Mike, come on, we're going out to lunch. We go out to lunch. And after lunch, we're walking back to the office building and we passed by the custom shirt shop. And Frank says, Mike, we have to stop here. And we stopped into the shop. And Frank says to the uh, the guy in the short in, in the store, measure him up. He needs four or five shirts. <laughs> okay. And so they measure me up for five shirts, you know, got to have the right cuffs, the right button down collar, the right monogram, the right fabric. Well, Frank said to me, uh, not that I don't like the shirt that you're wearing. Not that you're working for us competing with IBM. You got to look the part. Hey. Now, now, so we, I, I, I was pretty much surprised by a custom water shirt because I had never bought a custom shirt up at that point in time. And we walked down the street, uh, five or six more stores, and there's a Florsheim shoe store. I, I remember stopping there. Frank said, we got to walk in, Mike. And we walk in, and he says to the guy behind the counter, hey, put this guy up with a set of wingtips. <laughs> And these are the kinds of things that we talk about in the book. It's these small things that ordinarily people, you, you were fortunate. You had somebody took your side and said, hey, here's what we do it. I tell the story in the book about this person uh, who's going to be a partner, going to be a partner. Mm -hmm. And the head partner took him to the window, pointed to their car and said, is that your 57 Chevy? He said, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I love it. Well, don't park it there. Park it somewhere else. Get you one of these others. And then it had all the other more fancy cars. They didn't, if you wanted to be a partner, you have to look the part. That's part of it. Right. I had a, a talk about in the book about my brown corduroy jacket. Oh, I love that thing. I wore it everywhere. Nice patches, very professorial. Yeah, and, I could see a professor yeah, wearing and, that. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I was at a, uh, a, a, a meeting, and the person took me aside and said, look, you're interacting with a better client of, uh, than, than you have been. You need to do something about your threads. And so I went out and, and, and took care of my threads. A uh, month later, I was in New York City at uh, another meeting, and this uh, the person who was speaking was an advisor to presidents, and I wanted to ask him some questions. So afterwards, there was a group of people standing around talking with him, and I went up to him, and I, I was going to take my place in line with everybody mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. He stopped talking to everybody else, turned to me, and just shook my hand, introduced himself, and we chatted, and then I went on my way. Then he turned back to the others, and then it hit me. All those others look like I did a month before. Mm -hmm. I was dressed in the, the corporation uniform. Yeah, you, 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 it you makes a difference. I hate the idea of close makes the man personally, but it's true. There is there is there is a place there's, for that. These these are important things, and a lot of this and much much more are what I talk about in decoding the workplace. These are the things I call them. They're hidden. They're not seen. We're so busy doing the job. We don't understand these things that are going on around us. You know, we, I'll give you an example. Sure. We, you know, we, we have a, a, a standard policy in recommending uh, that sales professionals selling expensive business to business or business to consumer work clean shaven because people trust people without beards and mustaches in, in a business environment. Now, there were exceptions to the rule. We talked about culture. One of your, your questioners, we have salespeople who sell aggregate sand and gravel in mm -hmm. West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And there you got to be wearing facial hair. Uh -huh. We have guys who are selling uh, to fire departments in Southern and Eastern Kentucky. 
you should be wearing facial hair because all of your prospects are going to be wearing facial hair. Uh, you got to fit in. There's an interesting story in the book about a, uh, a gentleman who had uh, 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 really long hair. Mm-hmm. And he uh, was drafted onto a really nice uh, baseball team. Mm-hmm. And great deal, great contract, everything. And he hesitated. His agent didn't understand why he hesitated. And eventually he cut his hair. And when he cut his hair, they realized on the back of his neck, he had the sign from a gang uh, a gang initiation. Oh. Yeah. And the point I want to make is that in every organization, at no ma- it doesn't matter what level you're at, there is a, a cost of being there. You're giving time, you're giving energy, and there are things that you give without any question, and there are other things that, that you know you, you perhaps would not do. But you, you want certain outcomes, you, want, you, 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 you feel like you bring certain things to the table, but there's always a cost, and that cost depends on the person, and it's going to vary. We all have a psychological contract with our organization, and it's all different. And we may not even realize we have one. That's in the book. Good, John. We have a, another caller we're going to uh, listen to right now. I guess we're not going to listen to him. They must have hung up. Well, if you got cut off, call, call back in. <laughs> uh, my next question for you, John. Uh, in your chapter, uh, uh, chapter 9, you say, uh, fisher to water as people are to culture, unaware. Fish are unaware that they're in water. People are unaware that they're in culture. Could you tell us more about that? Oh, I could tell you a lot more. I, I hope you... Well, we, only, we only have about five minutes in this segment. Well, I would hope you about the book and actually read the whole chapter. But uh, here's, here's the thing. It's exactly... Uh, it, it's very appropriately pitched, I think, there. We are like fish in water. The culture of an organization involves uh, the norms, the roles, the values. There's so much to it. On, on the surface level, we see signs. For example, uh, at, our, at our university, you go into a classroom, you'll, you'll see a crucifix. That tells you something. You see the classes are small. It tells you the kind of classroom size you're going to get. These are artifacts. Below that, we have these espoused values, things that we say that we are. And then we have... Below that, we have the real core. What are we? Mm-hmm. For example, at the Mount, we espouse that we really care about the individual. And my goodness, do we ever. We work so hard to, to help everyone learn and, and, and grow. It's just so, so much a part of our culture. But, but if you're a person who goes in and out of organizations and you pretty much pay attention, you'll see that the culture of organizations varies tremendously. And you may not even be aware I had one class once that uh, I stopped at the door. I was in a smock. I took off my shoes. I went in on the, on the board and I wrote silence. I went back to the back of the room, took out a bowl of soup and started slurping it, making noise and just, and then after 10 minutes, I went up to the board and I wrote discuss and left the room, came back coat and tie. I could hear the noise down the hall. It was amazing. Some of them were saying, hey, what a waste of my money. What's that about? And, and other people were just laughing. They never seen a professor act that way. And the others were saying, hey, that's Dr. B. He's teaching us something. He's got to figure out what it is. Well, they're used to seeing a faculty member at the head of the classroom telling him exactly what to do. And there, there is a culture there. There are expectations there. And when you remove those, those aspects of the culture, people don't know how to perform. 
They don't know what's going on. Culture helps focus that. Now, there's a big difference between culture and climate. Climate has to do with your job satisfaction, participation, and decision-making. Culture is much more, much bigger and deeper, and it takes a lot of work to change culture. And that's leaders establish that. And uh, it's, it's very tough, very tough. Mm -hmm. What happens to companies that does, don't have a good corporate culture? Well, they're all going to have a culture. The surface, right. you know? They're all going to have a culture. It just doesn't mean it's going to be a good culture. And when you have a bad culture, uh, frankly, uh, I would recommend calling somebody to help you out. I don't know if you do that in Sadler training or not, but culture is hard to change by yourself, you know, especially in your larger organizations. It mm -hmm. really is. We, we have a simple policy that if the owner or leader doesn't play, we don't train. We don't work there. Oh, I totally agree. And in, in my case, if you don't commit to, uh, say, a two-day workshop or on a weekend or whatever, if you can't commit that, why do I want to work with you? Mm -hmm. you, have, you have to be willing to commit in order to show me that you're genuinely interested in making change. Right. I, I've, I've seen that. In, uh, it's, it's Let me tell you a real quick story, if I may. Um, very interesting, this interesting consulting experience I ever had. I was asked to go into a smaller operation, 16, 18 people, and uh, they were having, they, they weren't negotiating very well. They were very soft-spoken, apparently, in negotiations. People thought they were wimps. And I went in, and the boss says, hey, let me, uh, let me, started whispering to me and introducing to me in a very low voice. Okay, this is very interesting. Uh, so, we went to the outside to a cafeteria to talk. He still talked in a low voice. They were so interested. They were so interested in talking in a, in a low voice that, uh, or, or that they were so used to it, they didn't realize they were doing it anymore. So when they were out doing other things, they talked in a low voice. The room acoustics were terrible, moved into a different location, everything, all the problems were solved. Here we had something where people would stay for six, seven, eight years, it affected the way they did their job. It affected them, and they simply were not aware of it. Wow. Again, uh, we may be able to take callers in this next on this next commercial break. Six four six five nine four nine one six. Let's listen to two fast commercials, and then we'll be right back with, with John. This is a message for professional salespeople. It's an unusual message. I'm going to tell you that our product is expensive and difficult. It takes effort to use, and it's not for everyone. We provide difficult but effective sales training. It's the kind of training familiar to champion athletes. It builds winners in the world of business. We don't promise quick fixes or color brochures, only hard work that will teach you how to sell effectively even when your price is higher. If you're tired of hearing, I want to think it over. If you're finally ready to invest in yourself and your sales career, and learn how to close more business faster, call me, Mike Roth, 513-646-6523, and we'll invite you to our next Lunch and Learn Sales Discovery Workshop on February 5th at either 8 a.m. or 1 p.m., 513-646-6523. When you hear about a typical sales training program, does it usually involve a one- or two-day seminar where some alleged guru passes down what he claims are the secrets to making sales? At Roth & Associates, I'm the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. We recognize that truisms and motivating speeches aren't enough to arm sales teams with the tools they need for success. Sales is a hard business. 
typical sales training can only provide typical and disappointing results. At Roth & Associates, we use the Sandler methodology of continual reinforcement and ongoing training seminars, along with individual coaching to ensure victory in the world of sales. We've been doing it here in Cincinnati for over 15 years. You won't fail because I won't let you. Roth & Associates, 513-646-6523. 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. Finding power. In reinforcement. This is Mike Roth and uh, John Ballard uh, in our last segment. Uh, John, uh, in one of your chapters in the book, you had a uh, an interesting point of view on understanding your boss. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I see a big smile on your face. Well, I think a lot of times people simply uh, don't understand that by helping their boss, they're really, they're really helping themselves. And there's a lot of, a lot of things you can do to, to understand your boss. You know, do you really understand what your boss's goals are? Are they clear to you? Do you know what your boss really wants? Uh, how can you support your boss if you really don't know? Um, do you know whether your boss uh, is more of a listener or a reader? Does the boss like to have you come in and say, here's what I want to do and talk it out and make a decision? Or does the boss like to see something in paper and think about it? There are large differences there. Uh, In the book, there's a nice list of questions to ask yourself about your boss to see how well you actually know your boss. But I think it is important that you have that perspective that, you know, regardless of how you feel about the boss, the boss is the boss. And the better you understand your boss, the better off you're going to be. How should people handle bosses that are slightly dysfunctional? Oh, dysfunctional is a big word. They're all kinds of... Alcoholic. Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I would probably talk with my HR professional, to be honest, see what my options are. Mm. I really would. In smaller companies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't always exist. Oh, in smaller companies. Yeah. I don't know. I think I would probably be, if it were on a friend basis, I might try to help as a friend. But otherwise, uh, I might be looking around a little bit for other opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a tough one, really. That's yeah. really a tough one. Tough one. But it's a real one. And I see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people think uh, a happy worker is a productive worker. Uh, in the book, you suggest that's not necessarily true. You know, this is the most counterintuitive and consistent finding uh, in organizational Are we, are we talking about Smiling Jack here? Hey. Smiles on the outside no, we're talking, and it's reversible we're, we're on the talking, inside? There's been well over 10,000 studies looking at job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship between your individual productivity and, and whether you're really happy in the job. And, every, you know, you ask supervisors, those 80% of them are going to say, sure, the happy worker is more productive. But when you actually look at the research, it's much smaller. Uh, for those who understand correlations, it's around a 0.20. It just doesn't explain a lot. You can be in a job and absolutely hate your boss be, and, 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 and be very unhappy and be the most productive worker around because you're going to show the boss what you can do. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can be very happy in your job and not, and not really do a lick of work, and nobody's really holding you to what you need to be doing. Now, why do we have all these studies if it doesn't show to be what we think it is? It's because jobs dissatisfaction is highly related to turnover. 
to grievances, to absenteeism, and all of these things are very costly. So while job satisfaction may not be as related to individual productivity as we might think, it is highly related to job dissatisfaction. It's highly related to things that cost the bottom line a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and turnover costs the bottom line. A lot. And, and plus, there's another issue. Uh, job satisfaction is related to life satisfaction. There was an interesting study I talk about in the book. It was done some years ago. I think the guy's name is Paul Moore. And he looked at how long people actually live, looked at longevity. You know, what are the factors that affect longevity? And what would you expect? The fact that, well, health and smoking health. and all that kind of stuff. My genes. Yeah. And when he, Exercise. When, he, when they did the analysis and they, it, all, it all came out, the thing that affected, had the, again, it's not causal, but it mm-hmm. shows a relationship. The thing that had the biggest relationship to longevity, their job satisfaction, and the last job before they retired. Really? Yes. That was the best predictor of how long a person would live. Fascinating studies done at Duke University some years ago. Some mm-hmm. years ago, I think the whole issue of uh, in, in, in job satisfaction. Let me give you a pointer here for the for our listeners. For those of you who are in management positions, you want to make a difference. Very inexpensive. One of the biggest things related to job satisfaction is verbal feedback. When people do a good job, tell them to do a good job. If they need to work on something, tell them they need to work on something. But they like to know where they stand. And uh, it's so easy many times, even with colleagues, hey, I enjoyed working with you today. Hey, that was a great project. It can really make a difference, a difference in you and the people around you and in the culture. Very simple to do. Good, good. Uh, there was once a uh, study that I was exposed to over at Harley Davidson that said when, that they did on people who were leaving or had left. And they asked the qu- simple question, when did you decide to leave? And the, the study found that most people who left decided to leave more than 90 days before their last day. Mm-hmm. And so they figured they had about 120 day lead time mm-hmm. for corrective action before they lose people mm-hmm. uh, through voluntary separation. There was an interesting study done by AT&T on line crews where they simply they had one line group of line crews that frankly loved the guy that was their leader. Another one, uh, not happy, job dissatisfaction. Uh, they flopped them. Mm-hmm. Had the leaders change positions. Right. 30 days later, the job satisfaction, job dissatisfaction was totally different. Mm-hmm. All they did was change the leader. If, I, if, I've, if I'm looking at turnover, that's, and it's not a clear issue of uh, salary, that's one of the things that I look at. You know, look at the supervisor relations and how those are working. True. Turnover is an exceptionally expensive thing. Exceptionally expensive. We find it's expensive two ways. Mm. When people stay, they should be leaving. Yes, exactly. And and people leave, they should stay. Exactly, exactly. And and they're both terribly expensive. there's a lot in your in your book, which is uh, I'm going to call it Sandler-esque because you have a large discussion about bonding and rapport and goal setting and seeing the world mm-hmm. through someone else's eyes, or mm-hmm. as we say in Sandler, walking in someone else's moccasins. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how how does that really relate to organizations? Well, I think you would have a better uh, perspective on exactly how it ties back into uh, into the sailor training. Of course, I could use one of your rules and just ask you a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, 
I, I do think, of course, then I'd have to reverse the answer. <laughs> I think we might be losing some of our audience now. <laughs> we'll find that out. I don't know about saying that. Yeah. But uh, I do think that there are things that you do that uh, we talk about in, 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 in the book that, that stem from some common sources. Uh, one of the, the big thing that, that I've tried to do is, is to make the research very easy to understand and, and, and say, look, this is what it is. And then you take it and do with it as you wish. I was talking with a local business leader yesterday and she's read the book. She actually used the word wonderful, which I thought was, was nice. And she said, you know, even though she's been in the business of quite a while, she said that she got some insights out of it mm-hmm. and that the real key was that if you, if you look at it in terms of who you are and as you're going through, you reflect on what I say, but then relate it to your own experience and process it at a deeper level, you can't not come away with, uh, with some insights that will up your game. Good. They're keys to unlock opportunities. John, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get their own copy of the book? Well, two ways. One, uh, your favorite online re- retailer, such as Amazon.com. Or uh, you can request it at, at your local library. Good. Uh, and if they have a question for you that they want to address to you, can you give them the, your email address? Sure. Uh, I would say contact me out at Mount St. Joseph, uh, john.ballard um, at uh, msj.edu. And if you have questions uh, related to the book or whatever, or if you're interested in, in one of our programs, I, I like to think that our School of Business is, is a gem. Uh, and uh, getting better all the time. We have a graduate program on Saturday uh, for MBA, Saturday mornings, in less than two years you can get an MBA. We have a four plus one for undergraduates. They can stay another year and if they're admitted into the program and come out with an MBA. We have a, a wonderful MS organizational leadership program that I helped develop some years ago. Uh, a lot of good things, a lot of good stories out of that. A lot of opportunities over at the Mount. And, just, and I want to say, and I do appreciate what the Mount has done for me and the wonderful culture that we have there. Good. John, I want to thank you for being on the show today. And I'm giving you a copy of one of the Sandler new books, Transforming Leaders the Sandler Way by uh, Dave Archer, a good friend of mine in, in, uh, in Sandler. I wrote the uh, uh, forward on that book. Uh, again, in, in the uh, book, you'll have a copy of the Sandler calendar and uh, free training pass. Feel free to, to join us at one of our classes. I'd be delighted. And uh, next week, we're going to have Mark Horowitz on the show. And uh, then we're going to have uh, Missy Kirkpatrick. And she's going to be talking about her business and running two golf courses here in the Cincinnati marketplace. Scott, uh, again, thanks for being with us, John. It's Scott, nice, Mike. why don't you uh, take it away? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at mikeroth at rothconsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.